This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks on U.S. soil that launched a global war on terror. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Shortly after al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked and crashed planes into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and a Pennsylvania field, killing nearly 3,000 people, then-President George W. Bush vowed to avenge the deadly attack. While the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001 routed the repressive Taliban regime who harbored Osama bin Laden, the al-Qaeda leader was not captured and killed until May 2011, when the Obama administration launched a raid on his hideout in Abbottabad, Pakistan. Despite his death, bin Laden remains a powerful symbol of a movement, al-Qaeda, which was degraded during the 20-year war in Afghanistan, but is far from defeated. The Taliban are back in power in Kabul after the United States and NATO withdrew their military forces and the Afghan security forces and government collapsed. Will the Taliban once again harbor al-Qaeda and other Salafi jihadi groups? And if so, what are the consequences for regional and global terrorism? Even before the Taliban reconquered Kabul, al-Qaeda affiliates had been proliferating in North Africa, the Sahel, Yemen, and Syria. And the extremist threat is not just growing outside U.S. borders. The January 6, 2021 assault on the U.S. Capitol demonstrates that domestic violent extremism born of white nationalist ideology, poses a distinct challenge to established U.S. counterterrorism policy. For more analysis on the state of the terror threat 20 years on, we turn to two renowned analysts. Ali Sufan, who is a frequent voice at these VOA microphones, is a former senior FBI counterterrorism agent, now CEO of the New York-based consulting firm The Sufan Group, and author of several books, including The Anatomy of Terror, from the death of bin Laden to the rise of the Islamic State. And Bruce Hoffman, he is Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University here in Washington. He is the author of numerous books, the latest of which is the seminal tome, Inside Terrorism. And both guests join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Ali Sufan, let me begin with you. You wrote an opinion editorial in the Washington Post entitled, The Terrorism Era is Far From Over. Based on that, how would you assess the terrorist threat now, 20 years on, particularly since the very jihadist group, the Taliban, who gave sanctuary to al-Qaeda, is now back in power in Afghanistan? Frankly, I think the terrorist threat today is way more dangerous than it used to be on the eve of September 11, 2001. The Taliban, as you mentioned, is back in power after 20 years, and they are back in power because they won in Afghanistan. And that is a significant propaganda boost, not only for the Taliban, but for many of the anti-American militants and terrorist groups in the region. Second, Afghanistan is not the only lawless land today. Like we had before 9-11, Afghanistan was it. Al-Qaeda had a couple of camps and guest houses, and they were fighting alongside the Taliban north of Kabul against Ahmad Shah Massoud and the Northern Alliance. But now, Al-Qaeda have many affiliates, and there are so many lawless countries and regions like Afghanistan, 
in a Sahel, in North Africa, in Yemen, in Syria. We have an arc of instability that is causing significant pressure in the region. Also, in the same time, what makes me fearful about this, that Al-Qaeda's strategy, the management of savagery, appears to be working well for them. They are succeeding to a various degrees. The management of savagery has three phases. Phase one is to do terrorism, so they can weaken the international and regional order. Phase two, when states collapse, you prevent anybody from filling that vacuum, because who is going to fill the vacuum will be the new agent for the Americans or for the West. Phase three, you establish a state and then you link all these states together to have a caliphate. And it seems that they continue to take advantage of a lot of these conflicts that's happening across the region to replicate what happened in Afghanistan in places like maybe Libya, places like South of Yemen, in some areas in Syria. And even after we spend trillions of dollars in the so-called war on terror and invaded two different countries, in both these countries that invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. We don't have much influence in Iraq. We have to tolerate a lot of these pro-Iranian politicians who some of them are associated with groups that we declared as terrorist organizations. And every now and then the Iranians send us messages either to Erbil or to the embassy in Baghdad to remind us who's in charge of the security in Iraq. So yes, I'm pessimistic. I think we have been moving for 20 years in a war that has no strategy. We had a lot of tactics, but these tactics, even though many of them were successful every now and then, they accumulated to a strategic defeat, unfortunately. The numbers speak for themselves. Before 9-11, there were probably about a little bit more than 400 members who pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda. Many trained in their camps, but not everybody who went to the Qaeda camps in Afghanistan pledged an allegiance to the organization. Today, the organization have 30 to 40,000 individuals who pledged bayah to the organization or its leaders in a Sahel or in, in Yemen or in Syria or in Iraq. And I'm not even talking about their most famous affiliate that broke off of the organization, ISIS. So the Salafi jihadi threat today, I believe, is more significant than it used to be 20 years ago on the eve of September 11, 2001. Well, Bruce Hoffman, are you as pessimistic as Ali Sufan that the Salafi jihadist threat is even worse now than 20 years ago? Absolutely, unfortunately. I would use another number. There are now four times as many Salafi jihadi, which is to say the ideology that al-Qaeda promotes, four times as many Salafi jihadi terrorist groups on the State Department's list of designated foreign terrorist organizations than there were on 9-11. So clearly, just as Ali described, uh, with the numbers of members who have sworn the oath of allegiance to al-Qaeda, there's far more groups and they're in far more places. I would look at it slightly differently than Ali, although I agree, but just to add another perspective. 20 years ago, the United States was the lone superpower in the world, and we had the luxury then of just focusing on al-Qaeda as a threat, basically one group in one place. So now we know there are tens of thousands of members as opposed to a few hundred. They're in many different continents. But what worries me the most is that Certainly in the first years of the war on terror, the United States could focus all its efforts on destroying 
al-Qaeda and on liberating Afghanistan. Today, we're completely preoccupied and distracted by many other national security concerns. So the rise of China as a peer competitor, Russia's expansionism, Iran's now closer progress towards obtaining a nuclear weapon. We're subjected to daily cyber threats against our commerce and our government. Just in the past few weeks, the climate challenges that we've seen in many parts of the United States. And of course, we're still in the midst of this terrible pandemic. And this, unfortunately, is precisely the environment that terrorists thrive in, because they become convinced that they can take advantage of this preoccupation or distraction. Terrorists are the consummate opportunists. They're always looking for an opportunity to strike, to sneak below the radar, catch us when we become complacent. And given this very full plate we have, given just as Ali has described, the Taliban is now back in power. Afghanistan undoubtedly is going to be a haven for terrorism. We already know from the United Nations report last spring that some eight to 10,000 foreign fighters have already gravitated to Afghanistan. That pace will only quicken, as we have seen over the past 30 years in various locations, when there's a vacuum, foreign fighters congregate and create even more stability and more violence and aspire to turn local grievances into regional security problems and then into global threats. Well, gentlemen, a really dark picture, but it's a very realistic portrait. So back to you, Ali Sufan. Can you mention any successes, perhaps, with respect to the U.S. counterterrorism response over the past 20 years, despite the many failures? What do you think we have learned in a positive way? Well, it's yet to be seen how much we learned from the last 20 years. But I think we had a lot of successes in making our country strong domestically and intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies on every level, federal, state and local, working closer with each other, sharing information. We were able to prevent another 9-11 from happening, even though they were planning to do more spectacular attack, as they call it, against Western targets and against the United States. So from that perspective, we have a lot of success. Successes. We were able to disseminate Al-Qaeda's leadership. They are very thin when it comes to top leadership and top operational people, even though the organization is still strong and it's bigger than any specific individual at this point. But overall, a lot of these successes, unfortunately, produced a strategic failure because we never had a comprehensive counterterrorism strategy that deals with the threat as it is, that deals with the complexity of countries like Afghanistan or like Iraq or like Libya and trying to deal with the reality as it is, not as we think it ought to be in Washington. Also, at the same time, I think Sun Tzu said long time ago, if you know your enemy and know yourself, you will win a thousand times in a thousand battles. Unfortunately, we did not take the time to learn about our enemy and about our plans and about their ideology and how we can counter their narratives. And we forget a lot about who we are. We forget about our values. Images like Abu Ghraib became a recruitment tool for al-Qaeda and other Salafi jihadis to join the insurgency in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq was another action that fed directly to the narrative of the Salafi jihadis and al-Qaeda at the time, even though before we invaded Iraq, al-Qaeda was on the verge of extinction. I remember I was in Afghanistan in the end of 2002, and al-Qaeda and Taliban were regrouping again, and we knew that they were regrouping again. But at the same time, the military were getting instructions to remove many of their special forces and many of their 
assets away from Afghanistan to prepare for the Iraq war, a country that has nothing to do with 9-11. But also at the same time, because we went on these kind of paths, 75% of the American public on the eve of the Iraq war believed that Saddam was behind 9-11. And this kind of rhetoric, this kind of disinformation, if you want to call it, produced significant distrust in the long run between the government and between the people. It's not only the torture, also the illegal wiretap program, a lot of other things that were done created significant distrust between the institution and between the public. And unfortunately, that all, in a way or another, led to the situation that we are living in today. So operationally speaking, tactically speaking, We had a lot of successes, but unfortunately, overall, strategically, we failed. And the events that took place a couple of weeks ago in Afghanistan is a clear manifestation of that failure and a clear manifestation of the defeat. Bruce Hoffman, we're painting a dark picture, but this is the reality. You also have mentioned that diverting resources from Afghanistan in 2003 to invade Iraq on false premises was a major mistake. The use of torture which did not really elicit any kind of actionable intelligence that also undermined U.S. values and the rule of law. But can you cite any measure of success from the 20 years to today? Yes, but it's one that I worry has been fractured or mortgaged in recent weeks because of the shambolic handling of the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan and then this very complicated evacuation. I think one of the major successes of the war on terror was the immensely successful international and transnational cooperation on counterterrorism that was established in the wake of 9-11 when countries, even some countries that the United States was not on good terms with, rushed to help and assist in eradicating this threat. We recognize, as Ali and I have been discussing, that this is a global problem. It's not a local or a regional one. And yet it seems that by not consulting with many of our allies, with ignoring their pleas for a more measured, a more deliberate, a more orchestrated withdrawal and evacuation, we turned our back on them. And I worry very much that for 20 years, really, in the war on terror, the United States led by example. The example we've been setting in recent weeks, I think, will make many of our closest allies, many of our would-be allies, think twice about following the United States. It may lead them to conclude that they need to operate bilaterally or multilaterally on their own and perhaps include the United States. So I think what was a tremendous success, we've really just frittered away. From my perspective, too, I mean, you mentioned some of the major problems in the war on terror, certainly the invasion of Iraq, breathed new life into al-Qaeda at exactly a moment when al-Qaeda was faltering. Certainly Abu Ghraib recruited untold numbers of new jihadis into the ranks. But when I think of really the original, most consequential failure, it was our inability to kill or capture Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora in December 2001. And this goes back to exactly what Ali was talking about, that we've never had a consistent strategy. We either have too few troops in place, and nowadays zero is the right number, which I'm sure is incorrect, or we have far too many. I mean, clearly we swing between two extremes. It was unsustainable and a failed strategy to invade and occupy countries that have hundreds of thousands of American troops overseas. But now we've set the default at zero, which I think is also going to prove to be completely inadequate because when one thinks about it, it was finally achieving the proper balance of modest force sizes 
that strengthened our allies, that strengthened individual countries in their own struggles against terrorism, that had been proven largely successful over the past few years. It had blunted many serious terrorist attacks. But now, for some reason, that's an extravagance. Even this modest commitment to forces overseas, we now see as an extravagance that we can't afford. And once again, we're leaving our allies really subject to these totalitarian ideologies that threaten their government and their populations. We'll have more in just a moment. But first, you're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. My guests are Ali Sufan, former FBI counterterrorism agent and CEO of the New York-based Sufan Group, and Bruce Hoffman, from whom you just heard. He's professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and senior counterterrorism fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. We are discussing the global terrorist threat as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks on U.S. soil. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal fan, Samim Aminzada from Kunduz, Afghanistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. If you had to gauge, you know, what is more threatening to the United States today, would it be Salafi jihadist terrorists, foreign terrorists, or what about the domestic terrorism threat that we've seen mushroom over the past years, culminating in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol? I think both are significant threats at this point, and we have to keep our eyes on both. I've been spoken publicly about the parallels between the rise of the Salafi jihadi threat in the 80s and the 90s, and what we see today being replicated by far-right and white supremacists, not only here in the United States, but in many Western countries. I think, unfortunately, we saw just recently how many of these organizations are celebrating the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan. It's something that they would like to replicate in the United States here. We see them mushrooming in numbers across the Western world, building relationships, uh, coordinating, going to places where they can train together. And unfortunately, the government at this point, both the intelligence services and the law enforcement agencies don't have the legal jurisdiction to go after these groups because everything they do is continue to be to the most part protected either by the First Amendment or by the Second Amendment. So I think this is a threat we definitely need to focus on and we keep uh, our eyes on. Domestically, if you talk to people in the FBI and talk to people in DHS and other agencies, uh, they tell you that they are more worried domestically, again, more worried about white supremacists and anti-government groups than they are about ISIS or al-Qaeda. Well, Bruce Hoffman, with regard to the domestic terrorism threat, I'd like to get your view. But we're also now faced with, 20 years later, the return of the Taliban and another potential sanctuary for al-Qaeda. How do you see that as well? Do you see the Taliban, you know, reinvigorating its relationship with al-Qaeda, which would again be the opposite of what the United States would have wanted after 20 years? First, in terms of the domestic threat, Ali and I are completely on the same page. From my perspective, it's not an either-or choice. And this is another profound difference between 2001. Now we're confronted by terrorist threats as much as we want to deny that they exist, both internally and externally, and neither of them are going away. So that is a very formidable challenge that we haven't had to face previously. 
in terms of the Taliban, they don't have to regenerate their relationship with al-Qaeda. It's always existed on numerous occasions. Al-Qaeda has repeated its bayat to the Taliban, its oath of allegiance to the Taliban. In fact, before Hamza bin Laden, bin Laden's son and supposed heir apparent as leader of Al-Qaeda, before he was killed in a U.S. strike in 2019, the Taliban had assured him that should they come to power as a result of these credulous negotiations that the United States had been engaged in in Doha, Qatar, they assured Hamza bin Laden that it would not affect the relationship with al-Qaeda at all. And this is indeed still the case. And I think what's so worrisome right now is that contrary to every assurance, every promise the Taliban has given the United States throughout this protracted, a fatuous set of negotiations, they've gone back on their word. They didn't adhere to even the minimal requirements that they had agreed to create a unitary government, involve Afghans in governance, that they wouldn't conquer the provincial capitals, they wouldn't march on Kabul. They violated all of them. And now we see the temporary or acting government that's put in place has as its acting minister of the interior, one of the top people on the FBI's most wanted lists of international terrorists, Sirajuddin Haqqani. So clearly there is no kinder, gentler, more moderate Taliban, and they're putting notorious global terrorists in positions of authority in their government. So they're joined at the hip. They always have been. In the few minutes we have left, Ali Sufan, we can't turn back the clock, reverse the U.S. invasion of Iraq or the atrocities that were committed at Guantanamo Bay or Abu Ghraib. And apparently we're not going to be reinserting troops in Afghanistan that President Biden was bent on removing. So where do we go from here? What are some strategies that you would recommend? I know you've talked about the importance of eradicating root causes of these terrorist groups, the ideology that gives rise to them and other motivations. What would you recommend? One of the incubating factors that's feeding directly to this violent threat is basically the local conflict that's happening in so many different countries. And unfortunately, we need to work on having a plan. We don't have a plan yet to solve these conflicts. And these conflicts have no military solution. It has political solutions. So we need to mount diplomatic initiatives in order to solve some of these conflicts, because the more conflicts we solve, the less vacuum is going to exist. And the less vacuums exist, it will diminish the power and the influence of these groups and even the ability of our adversaries like Russia or China to take advantage of these conflicts for their own. After we spend a few trillion dollars in the war on terrorism, now we don't have embassies in Libya, we don't have embassy in Yemen, we don't have an embassy in Syria, you name it. So it seems that these militant groups are expanding their influence, and it appears, at least to them and to many people in the region, that the United States is retreating. Um, And a lot of these conflicts can be solved. If you look at the conflict in Libya, for example, all the parties who are fighting in Libya belong to countries that are allied to the United States. The Emiratis, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the French, the Italians, the Qataris, the Turks. Not only all these countries are allied to the United States, and they are fighting each other, and Libya is a mess. And this is creating a lot of opportunities for jihadi groups to emerge in Libya like they did after we pulled out from Afghanistan in 1989. So I think we need to start focusing on solving these conflicts, because these conflicts, first, they're not going to solve themselves. Second, they are creating significant pressure on regional security and on stability in the Middle East. And this will probably cause a rise in the Salafi jihadi terrorism threats in the area. 
Bruce Hoffman, I'll give you the last word. Notwithstanding the possible benefit of a small counterterrorism force in Afghanistan, we are where we are. And you have confidence in the Biden administration to look more broadly, have an imagination and the will to you know, mount a more forceful and diplomatic type strategy that can thwart the terrorism threat. Uh, no, I don't. And I say that from an historical perspective, not necessarily from a perspective of wanting to criticize the present administration. I would say this has been a problem with all presidential administrations when confronted by the threat of terrorism. They ignore advance warning. They push off taking the steps that could preempt or prevent or interdict far more serious threats from emerging later on. And what I worry about now is that we will continue to be guided by this wishful thinking that a quote unquote over the horizon capability, whatever that is, will prove sufficient in dealing with threats that we've seen are much more formidable than we previously imagined. And in that instance, it's tragically going to take probably another major terrorist attack before we once again, as has always been the case in history, we change course and become serious about countering this threat. Well, gentlemen, on that rather pessimistic note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Ali Sufan, CEO of the Sufan Group, and Bruce Hoffman, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.